This is Hank Rubichek, producer of So What's Your Story on KPFT Houston, 90.1 on the dial, Houston's community station. And now, Houston's only primetime radio program dedicated to news and concerns of the lesbian, gay, and transgender community. This is Queer Voices. This week, Deborah Moncrief Bell has a conversation with Atlantis Narcisse, one of the Grand Marshal nominees for this year's Pride 365 parade. Then, Deborah has a conversation with Jeffrey Campbell about the 35th annual Walk to End HIV coming up in March. This is a great fundraiser that uh, has been around, again, for 35 years. And we're looking forward to March 3rd when we will be out walking again for this great cause. Brett Cullum has an interview with Alan Cumming, who will be doing a one-man show in Houston next month. Why is it that we, as a culture, have decided that getting older is the worst possible thing that can happen to us when of course it's the only thing that is inevitable in our lives apart from death and I just am really curious about that and I I just I exhort people to stay open to life and to experience and to not close themselves down and think I'm too old for that. Deborah has a conversation with Bruce Lumpkin the director and Jason Carmichael the actor about the play Tide which starts tonight at Bering Church. When we did the show at uh, Ensemble, uh, Reverend uh, Diane McGee of the Bering Church saw it. And um, afterwards, she said, you know, I'd really like to do this next year at uh, at my church um, during Black History Month. And I said, well, that's really a lovely thought, but where exactly would we do it? And she said, well, how about in the uh, sanctuary? And we have news wrap from This Way Out. Queer Voices starts now. This is Deborah Moncrief Bell, and I'm speaking with Atlantis Narcisse, who's a nominee for Houston Pride 365 Grand Marshal, female identifying. Atlantis is the founder and CEO of Save Our Sisters United, director of programs with the Transgender Education Network of Texas, and deputy director with Less Rock. She's worked for the Montrose Center, the Legacy Community Health in the city of Houston, bridging the gap between community and needed services since the early 1990s. During the years of the HIV epidemic, Atlantis was known for organizing accessible and stigma-free HIV STDs testing, whether it was from her living room to partnering with local clinics. You began your journey decades ago as a house mother who held space for people who needed a comfortable, judgment-free environment for medical aid. This house, the Atlantis birth, was created to close the familial gap that many members of the LGBTQ plus community experience with respect to their birth or legal families and is lovingly called the House of Capri. Atlantis, explain what a house mother is. A house mother, for me, a house mother is to be there to fill in gaps, as you mentioned, but also to add this layer of support, of nourishing, empowering, and uplifting people. Like a lot of times people don't realize that when we enter into this community, sometimes our birth families are left behind. 
And you're looking for a place to belong, that collective. So for me to be that house mother was to help take care of your real life, not your club life, not anything else, but your real life and to see you as a person and empower you. So that's my definition for a house mother for me. Explain what Save Our Sisters United is. Save Our Sisters United is actually a brainchild of birth from my heart. Um, what people don't realize was that I was really part of the um, a support system that helped navigate trans women to getting healthy HRTs, to remove them from using street moans, to getting them in doctor's care. So what I started seeing was that a lot of people kept reaching out to me um, after I would leave the club. And I was like, what happens if I'm not here? So the SOS was supposed to be like this call to action, share, share our strength, see our, um, see our strength, shed our shame and all these type of things. So SOSU started with the, um, trans women of color. And then we eventually started SOSU, which is the umbrella, which SOS lives up under, as well as SOSB, which is for trans men, transcending gaming, which is a social event for the community to come in and socialize and build community. What does being nominated for Grand Marshal mean to you? You know, Deborah, I have been thinking about that a lot. What it has meant for me? I think I said early on that thanks for seeing me. A lot of times we are doing the work and people don't see us. And they only see our body of work and not the body that does the work. So for me to be seen in Houston, Texas as a black trans woman over 50 plus, it is phenomenal. It is heartwarming. It also makes me um, realize that I'm not forgotten, if that makes sense, that I still have some type of presence within our community. Well, I would think you would be hard to forget. And when you said over 50, I, my automatic response was, oh, you are not. What is your past experience with Pride? Um, my past experience, I got the pleasure to be along with Monica, Didi, and, and Andrea to walk along in Pride for the 50 year of Stonewall. That was great. That that whole event was such so many events of connecting, getting to share history, um, getting to hear history, getting to experience that and introduce yourself all over again as a person. Like I said, we are seen for our body of work and not the body, but it felt good to just have that interpersonal relationships in those moments at all those events. And it just felt good representing Houston, to be honest. And you are a native Houstonian, and you got your degree in sociology at TSU. You are representing in so many ways, so many levels. Do you think that pride is relevant? Oh, God, yes. Um, definitely. I definitely feel like pride is um, relevant. I think anything that shows the diverse in our expressions of our queerness is relevant. I don't care how big, how small it is. I think pride has been sustainable um, for me, definitely in my life of being aware of my queerness. Hearing pride and knowing its existence has made me feel like, yeah, I am relevant, that we are seeing that the city of Houston sees us, that the nation sees us because there are prides all across the nation. So pride is beyond something relevant. I think it's also empowering, uplifting, and impactful to those to come and those that are presently queer. The theme this year is you won't break our pride. What does that mean for you? Especially after the year we have had as trans people, you won't break us. I think that means that no matter what you say, what you do, we are resilient. We are not going anywhere. Though you may take these superficial attacks at us, we are stronger and we are even stronger together. 
not breaking us, meaning that we are our own joy. You don't get to govern that, not um, bending us and tearing us down because we uplift and empower each other. We're our own ecosystem of all that and that you have no access to that, no matter what you do on the outer walls. This is Deborah Moncrief-Bell, and I'm talking with Atlantis Narcisse, one of the nominees for Pride Grand Marshal, Female Identifying. What would you say your number one achievement in the community is? I have really um, believed that my number one contributor is uplifting the narratives of Black trans women here in Houston. As many people may know, it it was three Black trans women that really started the narrative of Black trans women here in Houston, myself, Didi, and Monica. And I'm the only one left in Houston right now. So I am glad that Black voices, especially those of Black trans bodies, are being heard, those narratives are being seen, and the importance of why narratives need to be expressed and heard and taken care of. So yes, I feel like me just being present, creating that, doing the work that I have done is the most valuable thing I could have ever done because we started the conversation. Tell me who Dee Dee is and who about Monica. Monica Roberts is um, I have been having so many conversations about Monica. Monica was really um, the push behind getting narratives out there about trans murders, as well as anything that was anti-trans. She was a beast when it came to the political um, arena, which I am not. So thank you, Monica, for holding that down. And Didi was definitely another beast for on-ground um, advocacy for trans people, as well as going into places like healthcare, um, city of Houston healthcare departments to um, battle for us to be able to use the bathroom. So there are a lot of things that we have all done and contributed. I used to call myself the Harriet Tubman of the movement (laughs) (laughs) because I just felt like, hey, we could do this. Um, But now that um, I'm the only one here in Houston, sometimes I just have to come from underground, which I've been doing for the past 10 years and really showing my face. Yes, unfortunately, we lost Monica several years ago, Monica Roberts, who was indeed a force of nature. And what is Dee Dee's last name? Waters. That's right. (laughs) Couldn't (laughs) think of it for a moment there. We do miss those that aren't with us, but they also gave us inspiration to carry on. Is there anything that I did not ask you about that you want folks to know? I would just want people to know that right now, Any attacks or anything that's coming toward queerness is not a me agenda. It's a we agenda and that we are stronger together as we have always shown in history. And we will continue to show that and that we are all powerful in our own spaces and we're all each grand marshals in somebody's eyes. Thank you for being with us on Queer Voices. Voting for grand marshals takes place through the month of March by going to pridehouston365.org and clicking on the Grand Marshal tab. There you can see the profiles and cast your vote. You're listening to Queer Voices, and I'm talking with Jeffrey Campbell. Jeffrey is the CEO of Allies in Hope, and I guess we still have to say formerly AIDS Foundation Houston, so that people are uh, sure to understand that it's a continuation of a long-serving community organization. We're going to talk about the 35th annual Walk to End HIV. Jeffrey, things have sure changed over the last 35 years since the walk first started. First of all, let's say what the walk is. 
Deb, I really appreciate the introduction. Thank you for including um, AIDS Foundation Houston in my in my introduction. Although we branded as Allies in Hope last year in May, we are the organization formerly known as AIDS Foundation Houston. And this is the foundation upon which um, this current 2024 organization was built upon, as well as this 35th annual walk to end HIV. So the walk itself is a way to do it. It is to continue to bring awareness to the reality that we are still with HIV as an epidemic in the United States, around the world, and even right here in Houston. In addition to awareness, it also gives us an opportunity to bring together individuals who do this work in various ways every day to help us get closer to ending the HIV epidemic in the Houston area. And then finally, it gives us an opportunity to fundraise uh, because uh, most organizations that are doing this work do not... Um, we we all we don't always have all of the money that we need to impact the lives that are being affected by HIV, and so this is a great fundraiser that uh, has been around again for 35 years, and we're looking forward to March 3rd when we will be out walking again for this great cause. The walk kind of marks an anniversary for you since you took on the position of CEO, even though you had been with the organization longer than that. So congratulations on your first year. Thank you very much. You're absolutely right. I started in the position of CEO last year, March 1st. Uh, walk was my really first public-facing uh, event that year. And so it is coming up on my first year anniversary. For many years, the walk coincided with the time change when we spring forward. So you had to get up really early to be there. <laughs> Plus, you had lost an hour. So I'm so glad to see that it's not going to be the same this year. And I guess you, you finally caught on that, hey, we need to <laughs> rethink this. Yes, you and me both. The walk will start at Sam Houston Park in downtown Houston. Tell me, where does the walk go to? The gates open at 9 a.m. Sunday, March 3rd, and we'll start walking at Sam Houston Park and then walk down Allen Parkway. Um, I believe it is about a three-mile walk, so we'll turn around right at walk. We'll do the turnaround there on the bridge, and we'll start heading back towards Sam Houston Park, where we'll have a, a small after party and celebration. And we do have to be careful talking about fundraising since KPFT has to raise its own funds. What is the process that is used for people to raise funds this way? Individuals, uh, whether they want to give individual contribution or if they want to create a team, they can go to our WALK website, which is www.walk to end HIVHouston.org. Again, you can go to www.walktoendhivhouston.org and you can make a contribution or you can sign your team up or set yourself up to sponsor a team on that website. I understand Brian Lavinka is hosting a team from his place of employment, and that's one way you can do it. You also 
don't have to come to the walk. You can still participate in a number of ways. But what happens when someone's in the walk? I mean, is is everyone trying to get from the start to the finish as quickly as they can? Or what's going on? You know, it really depends on who you are. Some people uh, run the course, uh, the one, the walk course. Some individuals walk with a group. And so they're going to stay, they're going to hang out with their group. Others will walk as an individual and just, you know, they'll either walk slowly or they'll walk pretty quickly. And we actually have a board member. Chris Lewis rides his unicycle for walking every year. Um, and this year, I want to add, we, we always have uh, lots of folks who come out with their with their pet puppies and, and dogs. So this year, we're going to have a dog dressing contest. So whoever comes out and has their dog dressed to the nines for walk, uh, there's going to be a prize for that dog and that owner. Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. And as a human being, wear a hat, wear sunshades, Wear sunscreen, sunscreen. protect yourself. You've got someone very exciting that's going to kick the day off by singing the national anthem. And who might that be? That is wonderful. Cam Franklin uh, with, with the Suffers. We are so excited that Cam has said yes to uh, this opportunity to not only sing the national anthem on the front end walk, but Cam will also be doing a couple of numbers with her band uh, once all of our walkers get back into the park at the end of the walk. So we're excited. And that usually is around from 1130 to 1230, and that's when the post-party begins. So not only do you get to get some exercise and fresh air and be in community with lots of people there for the same reason you're there, but you get to have a little party afterwards. And then there's another party. There is another party. So the after party is going to be at Kiki Houston, located at 2409 Grant Street in the Montrose area. Uh, Christopher Berry is the owner of uh, Kiki Houston, and um, they are agreeing to allow us to host the the post-walk party in full bloom at Kiki Houston. We're excited. Christopher with Kiki's and Buddies has has just been a wonderful supporter in the community. Lots of events take place there and it's really become a, a staple in the community. I mentioned that things are very different now than they were 35 years ago. And I was thinking, my gosh, I think 1982 was when the AIDS epidemic started. I remember reading the newspaper article with this headline about this rare cancer being seen. I've been involved as a member of the community and also worked with the uh, support group at Bering Church for a number of years. All of us that were around remember those very, very dark days when a Mm -hmm. diagnosis of AIDS or HIV you know, it went from HIV to AIDS fairly quickly. A whole generation of young men died. And that, that's one reason I, I never lie about my age. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I was able to live when there were so many others that did not get to. But what are some of the other changes that have taken place in these years? And what exactly is Allies in Hope doing? 
So Deb, first of all, thank you for being a part of that energy and effort that was needed uh, when we first started to be so severely impacted by this epidemic back in 1981 and 82. Um, thank you for that. And um, that, you know, 1982 is when this organization, Allies and Hope, we were launched as the Carposi Sarcoma Committee by a group of uh, employees that were working at Anderson. Um, and what we were seeing in the early days uh, certainly were individuals getting an HIV diagnosis and with a ma- within a matter of months being diagnosed with AIDS. And um, within a few months of that, um, having passed away, there needed to be a lot of work on the science and medicine side to develop drugs that um, the body could withstand uh, because a lot of the early drugs were really very rough on the body. Um, So developing that, the research, addressing stigma, the stigma that has been attached to, um, you know, our queer community, uh, regardless of how we identify. What we see now at Allies and Hope, our mission is still to end the HIV epidemic in the greater Houston area. And within that, what we're seeing now is we are clearly understand that a person living with HIV who has a suppressed viral load is scientifically unable to transmit virus to another person through sex. Now, what that means and what has happened to enable that is the medication. And and so, you know, it's important for persons living with HIV to get on a treatment regimen as soon as possible and take the medication. Testing is also important. And we provide HIV testing uh, as well as testing for other sexually transmitted infections, chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, and hepatitis C. Do you still maintain a food pantry? Thank you, Deb. Yes, Stone Soup. We actually have Stone Soup in two locations. Uh, at our Midtown location, which is located at 2328 Fannin, right at Fannin and Hadley. And then we also still have a Stone Soup location at our West Park location uh, out in uh, Southwest Houston. So uh, Stone Soup, we are providing food for individuals who have food insecurity. We also provide uh, housing for individuals that are uh, experiencing housing insecurity. And that's regardless of an HIV status. We do believe that housing is health care, that individuals who are living with HIV that are housed are more likely to be on treatment, treatment adherent, and virally suppressed. Um, we have Camp Hope. I love Camp Hope. So um, Camp Hope is a camp that was started 27 years ago in um, an effort to create a safe space one week in the summer for children living with HIV. And uh, 27 years later, we're still going at it with camp. And we have some very longstanding, amazing camp counselors who come back every year excited to see the kids. And and Deb, I want to add this because this speaks to science as well as to camp. Um, when camp was started, there were a lot of young kids, seven and eight and nine-year-olds who were a part of camp. Um, I will say that many of those kids grew up and, and some of them now come back and serve as camp counselors as young adults. But the other thing is, um, as we look at the demographic of, of camp, we're seeing fewer and fewer young children who are uh, coming to camp 
while living with HIV. And that's because of the science that enables a mother uh, through medication treatment to be able to deliver that child without fear of that child having contracted HIV um, on the mom. So we're seeing fewer and fewer kids, seven, eight, nine-year-olds. But on the other end of as uh, we have teenagers who are sexually active, and many of them, uh, we are seeing a rise in the number of teenage and young adult HIV cases. We're seeing, you know, more individuals on that end. So the work continues. And Camp Hope continues to serve a purpose for our children, our teenagers, and our young adults who are living with HIV. This is Deborah Moncrief Bell, and we're talking with Jeffrey Campbell, CEO of Allies in Hope. Let's just go again. It seems to me you have a very modest fundraising goal for what all is needed because of all the services that you do provide and the work that's being done. The Walk to End HIV in Houston, the 35th year. Tell me the de- deets. Give me all the deets, Jeffrey. Well, let me give you the details. So this is the 35th annual Walk to End HIV sponsored by Allies and Hope. And in addition, uh, we're going to kick off Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. Uh, the park will open. There'll be some light bites, some food, some fruit, some coffee uh, that will be out there. And of course, water, because we want to stay hydrated. And then, uh, you know, the walk will kick off with a sing of the national anthem talked about by cam franklin i'll have an opportunity to do some remarks you'll also hear from our board chair who is kyle pierce and we've also invited some other individuals uh, who are representing our city and our county to come out and be able to uh, provide us um, i would say words of encouragement and uh and words that i think help us to focus on why we're going there on march 3rd and in addition um you know There'll be walk T-shirts that will be available. I think that's fun. Um, we, we, most people now, they will do their contributions online, but, but we will have an opportunity for them to make contributions once they get to the park. It's going to be fun. Last year, I'm serious, and you would have, the sun was shining. There was not a cloud in the sky. There was a little bit of a chill that made it just comfortable enough for us to, to walk and not break out in a full-blown sweat. So I'm hoping that this year we have the same uh, the same weather that we did last year. You got it. I'm, I, I, I'm in charge of the weather that day, and you've got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for being with us to Thank tell you. us about this important event. You're listening to Queer Voices. I am Brett Cullum, and today on Queer Voices, we say welcome and bienvenue and welcome to a star of the West End, Broadway, the big screen, the small screen, an author, a pansexual sex symbol, and a fashion icon. This man reinvented the MC from Cabaret. He was part of the X-Men. He was a star of the TV show Instinct. He's hosted the Tonys. He's been with James Bond, Tom Cruise. He is the host of the reality sensation The Traders. He's been in countless movies, and he's coming to Houston for two nights at the Hobby Center on March 6th and 7th. Alan Cumming, do you feel good? I bet you do. Welcome to Queer Voices. I see what you did there. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, tell me about your one-man show that's coming up as part of the Beyond Broadway series. It's presented by Broadway at the Hobby Center, and it's called Alan Cumming is Not Acting His Age. What can we expect? 
Well, it's it's uh, I guess it's sort of like an old fashioned cabaret. I it's me and uh, clearly, and I have a band, and I sing songs and tell stories all under the theme of the umbrella of sort of you know getting older and what is age appropriateness and you know just like things that happen to you, things I've noticed about getting older and mostly about why is it that we as a culture have decided that getting older is the worst possible thing that can happen to us when of course it's the only thing that is inevitable in our lives apart from death and i just i'm really curious about that and i i just i exhort people to stay open to life and to experience and to not close themselves down and think i'm too old for that that's yeah so it's like it's hopefully an uplifting evening with sort of provoking and and also lots of funny stories and songs i'm totally looking forward to it because you know i heard a young guy say i'm 23 i'm old and i was like what (laughs) Where does I, this it, come from? <laughs> I so I get, it's something. Oh, I, I was like, I mean, some. I can't remember. It was recently someone said, "Yeah, they're thirty-five, but they're still really hot." Let's just replay that and see how, which bit of that sentence I find utterly offensive. Thank you. It's hilarious, and but I think it's this thing that everybody feels they should start saying. You know, they say, "Oh, I'm too old for that," or "Oh, I can't do that now." I'm, you know, in my whatever forties, fifties, thirties. It's just ridiculous. And people, and then I love when kids say like, like 22 years Oh, I can't drink like I used to. How like that? And then you've been <laughs> drinking for <quite> a year. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Have you ever been to Texas before? Yes. I've been, I've played, you know, I've done concerts before in uh, Dallas and uh, San Antonio. And uh, also I've shot a few films in, in Austin. So yes, I have a, a little history with Texas. So you kind of know what to expect. You're not going to be freaked out when you see all the cowboys coming down the streets or anything like that. Yeah. No, I've been to, because when I, uh, is it in Dallas where they have that bar where it's the cowboy country uh, dancing bar, but you've got a ho- the hoedown bar. Where, oh, where you, um, yes, we have many of those. Yeah, and there's, and there's, and there's one that's got, has tacos, sells tacos in the middle of the bar, which I loved. But I, lo- I just loved all these big cowboys with their hats all dancing away. I, I thought it was great. And they're, and all making out with each other as well. Absolutely. <laughs> Can you tell me, look, what are some of your favorite songs to perform in the cabaret? Some of my favorite songs that I, well, I do quite a few mashups. I, I enjoy a mashup because it means you get, you know, more songs for your buck. And, uh, I do, I kind of end the show with a mashup of, um, how did we come to this from the wild party? And it goes into maybe this time from cabaret. So I, that one, and, and it's, it's really, because they're very structurally, sort of the, the chord structures are very similar. And when I start it, I know that people think I'm going to sing maybe this time by the chord, by the chord introduction. And then I don't. And then I do. So I love a little tease as well. And then I, uh, I sing an Adele song, which is really beautiful, uh, when we were young. And I love singing that, but it's also really tough to sing because it's sort of, it's one, I mean, the thing about doing something like this, I sing, you know, very emotional songs. And so, and it's, it, depending on how I'm feeling and how sort of emotional and volatile or I'm being, it's, some of them are pretty tough to get through. And I, you know, have to really act them and really be in them. Like I said, it's, you know, being in the moment is the most important thing to be as an artist, I think. So it's, uh, there's, there, I love singing them, but there's something I'm a bit scared of them as well because I sometimes, you know, lose it a little bit, like just get a bit teary. And, and it's, and you have to be able to both be free to be emotional, but also to be able to rein in so you don't just start blubbing all over the place. You know, you are really identified with reinventing the MC and cabaret back, way back. <laughs> but how did you end up in that? Because I noticed that you kind of started in Scottish TV first, then you moved into theater, and you really weren't doing like musical theater. So how did no. you end up in cabaret, of all things, in a part that sings only? Yes, I. Uh, it is weird. I. It was really Sam Mendes' fault. I. He, he asked me. I was. I was. Uh, 
I did it in London, first of all, and I was about 28 or something. And he asked me to do it. And I was, I was playing Hamlet that year and I was a bit sniffy about it. I said, oh, you know, I don't do musicals. And, and then also I just sort of said to, him, I just, oh, I don't think this is for me. I don't, I don't want, this is such a, this subject matter is so delicate and so visceral. I don't really want to, sometimes I worry that the musical form can sort of demean subject matter sometimes because of the strictures of, you know, you have to have, but don't, and you have to have, you know, little songs and you have to, you know, you've got this sort of the I want song and all these things. And sometimes I don't think that works well for certain topics. Certainly I was worried about the fact that, you know, about the onslaught of, uh, of fascism in the late, in the thirties in Germany. Anyway, Sam felt the same way, actually. All our, all my fears were actually what he felt too. And I said, if I was going to do that, I would want to do it really properly and go back to the original books and try and act like someone who really was in those sort of sleazy clubs and to sort of make it not sort of glorification of kind of, you know, that way we kind of make things sweeter than they actually were. So, and he said that was exactly what he wanted. So in a funny way, my fears were exactly the same as his are and that we both came to the production wanting to reinvent the story, but by just by making it its authentic story, its authentic self. And that I kind of, it's rare actually that I think you two people, like a leading actor and a director, both come to something with, with such a sort of strong connection about what they want to do. And so in a way, I said yes, eventually. And that my character became the sort of center of the play and the whole, and sort of commenting on it in a sort of almost a Brechtian way. And so that's, that's how it happened. I, I did it in London immediately after doing Hamlet. I mean, I was exhausted. It was ridiculous. I did, played Hamlet. Hamlet finished on the Saturday at the Donmar Warehouse and then the first preview of Cabaret was on the following Thursday. So I always joke that the, the two characters kind of overlapped a wee bit. My Hamlet was a little song and dancey and my MC was a little, you know, having a nervous breakdown. So, but that's how it happened. Yeah. And then we did it to four years later, we did it on Broadway. You know, coming to the present day, I am obsessed with The Traders, which streams on Peacock, but yeah. not because of why everybody thinks. I literally watch it only to see what you are wearing. Is that <laughs> is that wardrobe close to what you wear every day? Do you just spring out of bed in a kilt and a smoky eye? <laughs> no, I, I have a little smoky eye this morning because I put some makeup on last night because we were doing a, I was doing a concert in Minneapolis, was it? Yeah, I had a little smoky eye and there's a little dribble of it still this morning, but no. I normally do not. It's actually kind of great because I, I got all the, all the wardrobe from the traders I get to keep. And so I was this weekend when I was on tour, someone in the band said, Oh, those are nice boots. I went, yeah, traitors. And every time I'm wearing anything that anyone remarks upon these days, I, it's always the traitors wardrobe. So I, I kind of, I don't look like, I don't look like I look in the traitors in real life ever. I mean, I, you know, I like getting dressed up and things. I'm going on some talk shows this week. So I've got some nifty little things to wear, but not that. I mean, I love the, I love the way I look in the traders because it's really part of the character and the, the whole idea of how I wanted to sort of, you know, play a very heightened Scottish layered version of myself. I'm not being, I'm not pretending to be me at all. And I even kind of make my accent a bit funny too. I really like, I mean, I feel it's a kind of interesting because I'm sort of subverting the form of hosting reality competition shows because I'm actually be acting it as well, which is, I guess it's my way of doing it. I, I don't, I, I think that's what they wanted. They, I mean, why would you ask me otherwise? You know, they, they knew what they were. Once they explained to me what, why they wanted me to do it, I thought, Oh, I see. So I'm going to be this heightened sort of James Bond villain sort of person. And I absolutely adore it. I mean, it's such fun to do because I am as obsessed in the moment with, with 
the, what's going on and who's getting banished and who's getting murdered that as people are when they watch it. And, and, and but it happens in real time for me. So I, I just, I'm immersed in this world where like I go home, I have the round table and then that's the end of my day and I, I get driven home, but I can't go to sleep until I know who the traitors have murdered. So I make the producer text me. I'm like a little boy. I can't go to sleep. And then, you know, then I go, Oh my God. And then the next morning I'm back in and I have camera, a big screen in my room when I get ready with all the little feeds of the camera. So I can sort of snip on them when they're doing the reality bit. I feel like a, you know, I do feel like a James Bond villain in his lair. You know, because this is Queer Voices, can I ask, in the LGBTQIA plus spectrum, which do you consider yourself? What letter are you owning? I would be a B. I, I would, I've always thought of myself as bisexual and I sort of, you know, ping-ponged back and forward between genders <laughs> early on. And um, I was married to a woman and then I was with a man and then I was with another woman and a bit like that. Now, you know, I'm the pendulum has kind of swung a little. For, I've been married to my husband for, I've been with him for about 20 years. But I've, I still would always consider myself to be bisexual. I haven't, you know, I haven't, my circumstances have changed and I'm very comfortable with where I am in my life. But I think it's important as well. I think bisexuals or the concept of bisexuality is something that has always been in doubt. And I just, I, I make a point of saying that so that people know that it, you know, it's like, you know, people say, but you're with a man and you'd be married. I've got, yes. And I go, but you know, you can have a gay priest. So why can't you have a bisexual married man? Well, Alan Cumming, you're coming to Houston for two nights, March 6th and 7th at the Hobby Center for Performing Arts. It's not even a one night stand. We get you for two nights. So I feel like we're going to be in a relationship with you by the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> the show is titled Alan Cumming is not acting his age. And I wanted to say you're a treasure. You're one of my idols and not be more thrilled to have gotten to speak with you on Queer Voices. Oh, thank you so much. What, darling? Thank you. This is Queer Voices. In 1963, the world lost four little girls in the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. 14-year-olds Aidy Mae Collins, Denise McNair, Carol Robertson, and 11-year-old Cynthia Wesley say their names. Aidy's sister Sarah survived but lost her right eye. Twenty other people were injured. Justice, if there ever can be justice for this sort of thing, came slowly. Being that I was born in Birmingham and was close to the same age as these girls had a profound impact on me and is the marker for my lifelong commitment to anti-racism. The play Tide deals with the subject of this tragedy by telling the story of a father, the father of one of the little girls who died. He lost his precious daughter, and this is a heart-rending story of his loss and recovering. Uplifting and spiritual, the play is written by multi-talented Houston playwright Crystal Ray and is performed by Jason Carmichael. With us tonight, we have Jason Carmichael, who plays Daniel, and Bruce Lumpkin, who directs this play. This play was produced in 2022 at the ensemble starring Jason Carmichael as Daniel. What brought about, Bruce, this new production? 
Well, actually, um, when we did the show at uh, Ensemble, uh, Reverend uh, Diane McGee of the Bering Church saw it. And um, afterwards, she said, you know, I'd really like to do this next year at, uh, at my church. Um, during Black History Month. And I said, well, that's really a lovely thought, but where exactly would we do it? And she said, well, how about in the uh, sanctuary? And I said, you mean the sanctuary of the church where you preach? She said, yes. I went, I'm in. <laughs> what a great idea. I mean, what a, for this show to be done in a church, in the sanctuary, about this, the subject matter that it's about, it just seemed to be a perfect thing. And she wants to bring it to her audience and to, uh, to I mean, her audience, excuse me, her uh, her. Uh, well, to the congregation and congregation to the, is the word I was looking for, yeah, and, and to the public uh, mm-hmm. because it is open for all of us. Jason, what is it like to revisit this part again? It's like climbing a mountain, but but a wonderful experience, and it's not the same mountain this time, of course, as when we first mounted it because of the emotional content, because of the the density of the dialogue. Um, it requires a uh, almost a, a kind of a muscularity um, in, in performance as well as in preparation. So it's a wonderful opportunity, which is why I'm so appreciative of the chance to do it again. And because I believe the play has legs and that any opportunity that we get to put it up will be, I know, cherished by us all. So it's, it's a great, great feeling, but it's a little bit daunting and intimidating always. Can you explain why the play is called Tide? I think Crystal Ray, the author, has created a wonderful analogy of uh, the necktie in terms of the corporate America and, and kind of the face of middle class and professionalism, what that signifies, and how it also, in my mind, kind of can become somewhat of a noose that is a restrictor of, of freedom and ties us to conventions that are not necessarily organic to our culture that ultimately can do us harm if we can't figure out a way to navigate those waters. So I think that she calls it tied. And I think it has so many so many other parallel meanings from that in terms of how we are tied to the past. We are tied to the ancestors. We're tied to each other in this country, even though sometimes we, we resist that knot. And so I think it's just a, a wonderful allegory for the piece that, that, uh, that we're telling. Did you do any research into the actual events of 1963 in preparing for this role? I did. I mean, I, I'm a student of history and I was familiar with, of course, the bombing on the church and the four little girls. But I did some specific research and I started with a wonderful documentary by Spike Lee called Four Little Girls which is just a fascinating exploration into not only the events, um, but the families of the little girls and the community and the time that's elapsed since and how our country has and has not evolved from that horrific moment. And, and so I, I did. I spent a lot of time going through that and, and different books, different um, stories related to the material, family members, chronicles and things of that sort. And then I knew we weren't trying to specifically create one parent, you know, one individual father of one particular of the four little girls. So there were certain things that I gleaned from the experiences all the parents talked about. Just, of course, my own feelings as a parent and as a, as a citizen and the patriot of, of, of this country. And so it was a, a lot, a lot to pull from. I imagine it was quite emotional. I know in, in reading over material yesterday, I, I wept. I just wept. And I, I said, I remember so vividly when it happened, but it's been 60 years. 
And I highly recommend to anyone, everyone, to go and do some reading and maybe perhaps see the Spike Lee and the other material that is out there to really grasp an understanding of what this is about. As we know, the arts are a way to reflect ourselves and to examine ourselves. And I think this play probably presents a wonderful opportunity for that. Um, people were getting ready to start their their church meeting on a Sunday morning in September. It was Youth Day, and the in the basement of the church, the two sisters gathered in the ladies' room in their best dresses, happily chatting about the school year, and excitement filled the air. But just before 11 o'clock, instead of rising to begin prayers, the congregation was shook by a bomb that had been placed under the steps of the church. Just the thought of that, there it was identified as being the Ku Klux Klan that was responsible, and it took a, a while before people were brought to trial. As a black man living in America with this horrible shame of racism and slavery, our history, what did you find most touching in the play? Well, I'm glad that you say our history, because I think that's so important that it is American history. It is not just Black history, and we can't we can't divorce those as often as we try to. And so I knew that going in, because of my own personal beliefs, that it was going to be challenging emotionally and uh, cause me to dig up a lot, of, a lot of stuff. I think there were so many surprises and discoveries. I mean, one thing I found in my research that I didn't know just the, the proximity of time-wise was that the March on Washington, like the day before, or maybe the week before this happened, it was a direct retaliation to that perceived progress. And so that duality really struck me as because as the father, I want revenge for this horrible thing that has happened to my child. And because, you know, Birmingham at that time was known as Bombingham. I mean, dynamite wasn't anything new, citizens of Birmingham. That was just a way of life. And so for this to happen at a church, yes, Sunday school with four little girls, and how can you grieve and process what has happened and yet not go out and try or or succeed in killing the person who you know, who you see in your community that has done this horrible thing and knowing that justice won't be served, not even for 27, I think it's like 20, over 20 years. It's, 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 it's amazing. And the fact that it's just one drop in the bucket of so many horrible things. How do we as a people continue to go forward in this country, which is one of the same things that they used to try to figure out the answers to during slavery? How can we keep these people enslaved and not expect them at some point to grab pitchforks and, and come up to the big house? How can, how can we do that? And I think it's, it, it's so much incumbent upon our people, upon Black people, to shoulder that burden because we're the ones that have to. There's only so many cheeks that you can turn. But at the, at the end of the day, we're human beings. And if he allows, father allows his life to be consumed with, with revenge, how can he be a father to his other little girl? How can he continue to be a husband to his wife and a member of society? And so that reckoning to me was the most challenging aspect of the piece to deal with this grief and yet have enough love, compassion in my heart to overlook what has happened to my daughter for the good of society and for the good of my soul. No, I don't want to damn myself. I don't want to lose myself. But in a sense, I feel myself has already been taken away from me. And I think that's the, the, the burden that we, have to, that we have to carry. 
how do we maintain ourselves or maintain our dignity in the face of such dehumanization that we've experienced for so long? Bruce, what are your comments? Well, uh, first of all, I have to say Jason put it so uh, perfectly about uh, everything that he thought and felt about the piece. I think that my comments really are the fact that uh, the difference in this, in Spike Lee's movie, was a documentary, but it was an amazing documentary with so much history and so many facts. Um, it was wonderful. It was a, a wonderful jumping off place, I think, with this. But what Crystal Ray brought to this project um, as a writer is not only telling the facts that happened about that day and about the bombing, but how it affected this this man, this father, in his life with his other children, with his wife, with society, with his job, how it affected everything else in his life and how he fought through all of the pain, the sorrow of that, but came out with hope for the future and a way to approach the rest of his life and family, which I think is a beautiful, beautiful way uh, to put it. She's a wonderful writer. And uh, like I said, it's not a history lesson that she put on the stage. It is a, a show about human beings and their feelings and their emotions, which uh, makes a very different impact than just looking at the facts, I think. And Jason is an amazing, amazing actor. Um, working with him um, was a collaboration every day in rehearsal was was uh, building not only on a show, but building on a friendship. Yes, I, I can't see how it could not. Tide, a one-man play, will be performed at Bering Church, 1440 Herald Street. February 22nd through the 25th. Tickets are available through On the Verge Theater, that's theater with an R-E, dot org. This is being produced as a collaboration between On the Verge and Bearing Omega Foundation. We appreciate you being with us tonight on Queer Voices. And once again, say their names. Addie Mae Collins, Denise McNair, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Wesley, the four little girls. I'm Marcos Najera. And I'm Brian DeShazer. With NewsRap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the week ending February 17th, 2024. Greece is now the 37th country where same-gender couples can get married. The civil marriage bill includes adoption rights. Parliament voted decisively on February 15th, 106 in favor, 76 opposed, and two abstentions. Even intense opposition from the politically powerful Greek Orthodox Church failed to block it. The legislation was crafted by the center-right government of Kiriakos Mitsotakis. He hailed its passage on social media, calling it a milestone for human rights, reflecting today's Greece, a progressive and democratic country passionately committed to European values. According to opposition lawmaker Vasilis Stigas, marriage equality will open the gates of hell and perversion. Queer couples can adopt each other's children under the new laws. Under the civil partnership laws that have been in effect since 2015, only the biological parents of the couple's children had parental rights. The couples can be legally recognized as parents of a child born via surrogacy abroad, but they may not receive surrogacy services in Greece. The new laws will take effect as soon as they're published in the official government gazette. LGBTQ people and their allies were celebrating. Stella Belia of the queer parents group Rainbow Families told Reuters, This is a historic moment. This is a day of joy. Nepal has its first legally married lesbian couple. 
Anju Devi Shreshvara and Saprita Garung registered their marriage on February 11th in the Himalayan nation's capital city, Kathmandu. Venerable Nepalese activist and former MP Sunil Babu Pant called it the first case of a lesbian couple officially getting registered for their marriage in South Asia. Equality advocates like the non-governmental organization Mayaku Pahichan Nepal have been pushing for the rights of sexual minority communities. A press statement from the group whose name means recognition of love was jubilant about the campaign's success in getting officially registered same-sex marriage after more than two decades of struggle. Nepal's Supreme Court opened the marriage equality floodgates in June 2023 with an interim order that the government legalize same-gender marriage. In November, the federal government recognized the 1997 Hindu marriage ceremony of Maya Garung and Sarendra Pandi. Since Garung is a transgender woman and Nepal does not recognize gender changes, it was accepted as a historic first marriage of two gay men. Two cases challenging the sodomy laws of St. Vincent and the Grenadines were rejected by a high court justice on February 16th. Two gay men from the main island of St. Vincent contested the constitutionality of the laws that criminalize private consensual adult same-gender sex in 2019. The Caribbean nation's colonial-era statutes punish anal intercourse with up to 10 years in prison and up to 5 years for gross indecency. Christian Gonzalez Cabrera is a senior researcher at Human Rights Watch. He called the ruling by Justice Esco Lorene Henry that upheld those laws a travesty of justice and tacit state endorsement of anti-queer bias. Plaintiff Sean McLeish expressed disappointment in the ruling when he spoke with a Washington Blade from his U.S. home. He said, We will be discussing our options with my legal team because freedom and equality is worth fighting for. Similar sodomy laws have been repealed in the Caribbean nations of Trinidad and Tobago, Barbados, St. Kitts and Neves, and Antigua and Barbuda in recent years. In addition to St. Vincent and the Grenadines, laws punishing same-gender sex remain in effect in St. Lucia, Dominica, Jamaica, Guyana, and Grenada. A trans man in Western Japan can change the gender marker on his official documents without having undergone surgical sterilization. The February 14th granting of his request was the first judgment since the nation's Supreme Court struck down their requirement in October 2023. The Okiyama Family Court ruled that the plaintiff's hormone therapy qualified him for the legal gender affirmation. It ordered the local family registry to officially recognize 50-year-old Takita Usui as male. The victorious trans man was so excited and told television news crews, it's like I'm standing at the start line of my new life. A top host on state-run Polish television apologized for years of anti-queer rhetoric spawned by the Law and Justice Party. It's another sign of the seismic shift under Poland's new liberal centrist coalition since the previous right-wing government lost its parliamentary majority in recent national elections. Wuszczek Zelag told a February 11th national audience, as translated by The Independent, for many years in Poland, shameful words have been directed at numerous individuals simply because they chose to decide for themselves who they are and whom they love. LGBT plus people are not an ideology, but people with specific names, faces, relatives, and friends. 
Zelag directly addressed his two queer activist guests, Bart Staszewski and Yaya Heban. The groundbreaking mea culpa also marked the first time in almost a decade that LGBTQ people had been invited guests on the network. The host said, All these people should hear the word sorry somewhere. This is where I apologize. Such statements would have been unthinkable under the previous regime, which supported the condemnation of LGBT ideology by local jurisdictions and their declarations as LGBT-free zones. Tashevsky said both he and Heban were a bit scared to walk into the studio. After eight years of not being visible, of being some sort of lesser citizen, both Yaya and I were quite astonished by this. It was a touching moment. Finally, some people in the Spanish city of Seville apparently prefer to see their Christ crucified rather than resurrected. A new Holy Week poster by internationally recognized artist Salestino Garcia Cruz has traditionalists complaining that the portrait of Jesus is not one suffering on the cross, but a young, good-looking guy in a loincloth. He wears a glorified crown of gold ornaments instead of thorns, and the physical wounds are understated. In the words of Barcelona gallerist Artur Ramon, the depiction is effeminate or androgynous in a way. He told the BBC, Spain is a country that is still quite homophobic, and people don't like that he is represented in this way for a festival that marks the passion of Christ in his final moments of life. That's News Wrap, global queer news with attitude for the week ending February 17th, 2024. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap is written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappelle, produced by Brian DeShazer and brought to you by you. Thank you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more. For This Way Out, I'm Marcos Najera. Stay healthy. And I'm Brian DeShazer. Stay safe. This has been Queer Voices, which is now a home-produced podcast and available from several podcasting sources. Check our webpage, QueerVoices.org, for more information. Queer Voices executive producer is Brian Lavinka. Andrew Edmondson and Deborah Moncrief-Bell are frequent contributors. The News Wrap segment is part of another podcast called This Way Out, which is produced in Los Angeles. Some of the material in this program has been edited to improve clarity and runtime. This program does not endorse any political views or animal species. Views, opinions, and endorsements are those of the participants and the organizations they represent. In case of death, please discontinue use and discard remaining products. For Queer Voices, I'm Glenn Holt. Here's what our listeners and sustainers are saying about us. Here's Jane. First thing I'm going to talk about is something near and dear to my heart, and that is KPFT. The best program KPFT ever has is called a sustainer program. You can contribute what you can afford. $5 a month works fine. $100 a month, whatever it is, you have to pick it. The greatest thing about it is you can get yourself all sorts of terrific thank you gifts. The first thing is the one I really like is you get coffee and a coffee cup in the morning. How about that? Just for your sustainer pledge of $120 a year on top.
top of that, there is a benefactor out there who keeps giving $50 for every new sustainer on top of your pledge. Whether you get a brick 